This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, friends. Happy Tuesday. Hope you had a great long weekend. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with the afternoon sun, 770 CHQR. A lot to get to on the program today. Your calls, of course, 403-974-8255. It is both back to school for most Alberta kids, and it is back to work today. Uh, back at the Alberta legislature for MLAs. Now, I'm not convinced that today was the right time to send kids back to school, but just imagine how bad the optics would have been if the legislature had remained closed because of COVID, but we're going to send kids back to school. So let's hope it goes well. I mean, certainly things are are looking up on the uh, COVID front in terms of the numbers, the positivity rate, hospitalizations down. And we're going to hear today from uh, Dr. Hinshaw, by the way, at uh, 3.30 this afternoon. Now, the uh, other thing that happened over the weekend, though, related to Alberta schools, delegates to the Alberta Teachers Association Conference voted 99% in favor of a motion of non-confidence in Education Minister Adrienne LaGrange. Now, this comes off the heels of something similar from Alberta doctors and their feelings about the health minister, Tyler Shandra. So joining us to talk a bit more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jason Schilling. He is president of the Alberta Teachers Association. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, I mean, it's it's no secret that uh, the ATA, the education minister, have often been at odds. But um, still, that 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 was that was surprising. So tell us a bit more about this vote of non-confidence and some of the debate and conversation around that. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm not surprised by the debate. And this motion was moved from the floor by um, 29 out of our 59, our 55 locals that are urban. Um, small urban rural locals from across this province and just for a little bit of background information our annual representative assembly is 450 delegates who are all classroom teachers come from every corner of the province and they're all appointed to be a delegate through their local processes within their locals with around the province and so it's a representation of, of the teachers across the province in terms of how we set our direction our values our beliefs our policy and so that's a little bit about what our ARA is. The concern came up on the non-confidence vote with the minister for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, and teachers were very passionate. They were very thoughtful. They were very mindful about the concerns that they brought forward. Um, they were serious. They were genuine. They're concerned about public education in this province and the erosion that they see. They're concerned about the lack of support for students in their classrooms with uh, budget cuts, increases to class size. Um, They're concerned about the way that the pandemic has been handled with this constant cycle of isolation that uh, we've seen through this last year. And of course, kids and and, and teachers are back in school today, and they're concerned that we're going to keep seeing this isolation through this last month of school. I mean, people could get a call today 
saying, yeah, you're exposed, uh, you need to go home for two weeks, and they've been back in school for one day. Lots of concerns about that. A lot of frustration of the fact that they, um, you know, students are, no, sorry, excuse me, teachers and parents from across the province have been contacting the minister and their MLAs about their concerns of education, especially around a K-6 draft curriculum, and they don't get any reply. Um, they're simply ignored. And so teachers have been feeling uh, a lack of disrespect, um, a lack of being heard on the issues and the concerns that they've had. And they, they raised this very serious motion at our assembly. And as you noted, it was passed with 99% approval. And that sends a strong message to the minister and the government. And, and you support it as well? Yes, because I know the frustrations that um, our teachers are under this year um, and this last year. And I mean, it goes back to... Uh, for me, the, the passing of Bill 8 in uh, the summer of 2019 or May of 2019, the new Education Act that rolled back protections and rights for LGBTQ plus students and teachers. I mean, we rolled back rights for individuals in a passing of legislation that the minister had signed to. Then we saw um, budget cuts, uh, our pension being hijacked by uh, government in, in the fall of 2019 done without consultation to the association um, who are co-sponsors and have been for over 80 years and this was done without any kind of consultation uh, consultation or approval then you get the choice of education act which um, you know gave more stance to private schools allows charter schools to be created without any of the normal loops that they would have to go to to get approval and there was another uh, form of ministerial order that made Uh, All the school boards take the word public out of their names, and they were just school divisions. I mean, we're seeing this erosion of public education and a lack of support for our students in our schools. And uh, that is very concerning to me as it is um, to my colleagues because we're classroom teachers and we want what's best for public education. So when when you say there's there's non-confidence in the minister, is is this to be interpreted as as a call for the minister to resign, or or what is this intended to do or, or mean? Well, it's a lack of confidence in the minister's ability um, to to keep um, public education as a forefront in in our society. And we see that, uh, you know, I've I've heard some of the criticisms about uh, in the statement too that you know the association is private or politicizing education in our students, and that is not at all the conversation that happened on the weekend. Um, one of my colleagues said it really well. Teachers in this province are prioritizing public education and their students. And this is what the concern came up. Now the minister, um, the ball's in her court. Uh, If she wants to repair the relationship with Alberta teachers, then then she needs to make um, movement towards that. But I mean, some of these are political disagreements, aren't they? I mean, disagreement uh, over the curriculum as an example. I mean, isn't some of this political? Um, A certain element of it is, but when you look at uh, the curriculum, for example, this was a document that was drafted without um, the association's involvement or teacher's involvement for that matter, which is something that has always been done prior to um, uh, with the PC government that was before, with the NDP government. Um, We had a relationship with government in terms of curriculum development. This last iteration of the development of this K-6 that we saw released just uh, recently um, did not have the involvement of active teachers in the classroom and did not have the involvement on a genuine level of, you know, the faculties of education. And so that is 
you know, one of the things that we are looking at and saying we can't bring this um, this uh, curriculum into our schools, but at this weekend we also said, you know, um, we want to see a moratorium on the curriculum and we want to see a rewrite that involved Indigenous Francophone groups, uh, academics from Alberta faculties of education and teachers in that process so that we can get this curriculum right so it best serves our students' future. Well, and, and look, in fairness, I mean, there, there are clearly some some problems here. We've got a number of school boards who said they won't pilot this curriculum. So I, I think the government's going to have to do something. But in terms of the minister, as you say, rebuilding the relationship then, because it sounds like a lot of this is about policy direction as opposed to communication and listening and, and that side of it. So how does the minister or how ideally would the minister respond here? Well, I think the ideally the minister would respond by by listening to the concerns of teachers and i know they say that they listen but i don't feel like their voices are being heard and then moving on some of the things to make education better what teachers are seeing right now across the province and that they stated overwhelmingly this weekend at our ara is that they're seeing an erosion of public education and coming out of a pandemic we need public education in this province more than ever we've seen so many inequities within our system um, this last year that we can address and fix, and we have an opportunity to do that. Um, but that's not that's an opportunity that government does not want to seem to take. So I think uh, moving to address things like class size, um, to address uh, you know supports for schools, for resources, especially we're hearing from teachers about mental health supports for our students and for those who are working in the buildings. Um, to make sure that school boards are receiving the funding that they have for new students coming into the system because the new funding model that was produced by this government um, doesn't fully fund new students into the system. And so uh, you're going to see urbans, especially, you know, Calgary and Edmonton, those school boards are going to lose money because of this new funding model, which will increase class size and put more pressure on the system already. But I mean, as you alluded to, a lot of this is related to the pandemic and, and everything we've been dealing with over the past year and a bit. And and the exhaustion, the, the stress, the frustration, it's obviously a reality, and I don't think anybody doubts that, but is it any more or less of a reality here in Alberta than it is in, say, B.C. or Quebec or Ontario? Um, we've seen, you know, part of my job is to uh, connect with uh, the presidents of other uh, teacher organizations, similar to the Alberta Teachers Association across Canada, and they echo a lot of the same uh, pressures and concerns that they have here, that we have here in Alberta. But they also are echoing a lot of the same, same considerations and concerns that we have that their government is not also moving on, on these things that they need to address within their schools. And the government's made yeah. keeping school open a priority during the pandemic, but has done, um, you know, in the minds of teachers, very little to help mitigate that. And that's how you're seeing this uh, um, cycle of uh, isolations happen throughout this entire school year. Well, and, and speaking then to the uh, resumption of class today in class learning for well, pretty much the entire province, with the exception mm -hmm. of Fort McMurray, the Wood Buffalo region, was it too soon? Was it, you know, could we have taken a more of a staggered approach or your thoughts on the, on the return to school plan here? Well, we're putting our students in our, our schools um, and uh, staff who are working in those buildings back into the exact same situation that they were in two weeks ago. Uh, no changes have been made to um, the plan that has, that's in place right now to sort of mitigate 
um, that happening through the last month and a half of school. I know that they said that uh, this two-week break was um, for operational because they couldn't get enough substitute teachers um, to come into buildings to cover for quarantines. We saw a very high positivity rate within our communities of COVID cases. We had 35% of our schools um, that had outbreaks and alerts at the time of when they went online. And that number is actually still the same based on the last situational update that came out just prior to the main long weekend from government. So we're putting them right back into the same situation that they left. And uh, that's very concerning because we, you know, we're just repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And this was my concern I raised in January when we came back after the Christmas holidays. What are we doing different so that we don't repeat what happened in the fall? And it was the same. And that is the frustration that you see from teachers and why it led to this vote on the weekend. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Jason, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for yeah, this. Yeah, you bet. Have a good day. You as well. That is Jason Schilling. He is president of the Alberta Teachers Association. So talking about the return to school this week and talking about everything else that led to this motion passed over the weekend. 99% delegates voting in favor of this, declaring non-confidence in the education minister. Look, I don't think Adriana LaGrange is going anywhere. I don't think she's been uh, necessarily a star on the front benches when it comes to uh, the Alberta government. I, I think the curriculum has had a lot of missteps. Obviously, you know, the, the um, approach this year to getting kids, trying to keep kids in school hasn't been a, a soaring success by any stretch. I'm not so sure that today was the right time to send all kids back. You know, fortunately, um, we've got more teachers who have had a first dose of vaccine, even a lot of teenagers who have cases have come down from where they were on uh, May 4th when the premier made that announcement. But it does, it does strike me as odd that, you know, the one option that was always supposedly on the table that's never been used was, you know, having kids kind of alternate days in, in class. So kids are at school maybe two or three days a week and you got a lot fewer kids in class at any given time. We'll see. It's only a few weeks left in the school year anyway, and uh, let's hope that overall this doesn't contribute to any worsening of an Alberta's uh, situation, because certainly we have seen that improvement. Now, we told you about the story recently and uh, security experts, um, you know, expressing concern about the extent to which the University of Alberta have been involved in scientific collaboration with China. As the Goldman Mail describes, it involves sharing and transferring research in strategically important areas, such as nanotechnology, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence. Now, obviously, matters of national security fall to the federal government, but the Alberta government is, is raising the alarm here, calling on the federal government to get more involved in this, but also asking Alberta's major universities uh, to suspend these arrangements. So joining us to talk more about uh, the Alberta government's uh, response to all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, our Minister of Advanced Education, Demetrius Nicolaitis, joins us here this afternoon. Minister, thanks for making some time for us. Welcome to the program. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So talk about it from, from your perspective, how and when you became aware of this and to what extent your, your department can get involved here. Yeah, well, well, it's a good point. And I think there's, um, you know, th there's growing awareness, uh, as you mentioned earlier, that the, uh, I know CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, has been um, uh, producing some information that has been issuing some some words of caution and warning to our post-secondary institutions, uh, not just in Alberta, but across Canada, uh, and, you know, that's prompted us to, to take a closer look. And uh, obviously, we take those those matters very seriously. And we are very concerned and want to ensure that we're 
protecting our post-secondary institutions, our incredible researchers and academics uh, from instances of, of um, uh, where, where uh, research development is, is being used in, in uh, areas in which it's not intended to be used or in ways in which it's not intended to be used. So we're, uh, I'm very interested uh, to, to hear more from the federal government. We absolutely need a federal uh, approach here to provide more guidance to our universities, to our researchers, about how to engage with um, entities like the People's Republic of China or other uh, organizations that may have some challenging outcomes. So you, you've reached out to Alberta's four major universities. What, what is it you've, you've asked from them and of them? Yeah, so we, we've reached out to our, our four major comprehensive uh, research universities. We've asked them to uh, put a pause for the time being on entering into any new uh, partnerships uh, or, or research enterprises or activities with uh, the People's Republic of China or other uh, organizations that may be tied to the PRC. Uh, so, so there are there are arrangements that are in place and that that are already exist, and those will, those will continue. But again, we're asking for a, a pause on it, on entering into any new arrangements, uh, and as well to provide us with some more information about what uh, what current arrangements or uh, relationships exist with each individual institution, uh, and to get an understanding of what what types of arrangements exist and, and what type of partnerships exist between our institutions and um, and the People's Republic of China. Right. So, I mean, if there's legitimate research going on that doesn't, you know, that doesn't pose any kind of security challenges, that that's not something we're, we're looking to, to block or prohibit. No, not at all. There's incredible benefits from participating in, in international and global uh, joint research efforts and activities. And, uh, but of course, as, as CSIS and other organizations have been warning, there may be instances where um, uh, some research partnerships with uh, organizations like the, uh, and jurisdictions like the People's Republic of China, uh, again, are, are being used in, in unintended uh, ways. So in order to, to help, I believe we need a national framework, which I know the federal government is working on, and we need that urgently, that can uh, provide guidelines and direction to all uh, Canadian post-secondary institutions, researchers and academics about the types of things that they should be on the lookout for uh, and and red flags that they should be cautious of when engaging in global research practices. So you've asked these universities for more information on, on these partnerships or relationships. Once you're able to gather that, I mean, what, what can you do or what might you do with that information? Well, obviously, the, the information helps give, gives us a good uh, base level of understanding so that we can have a clearer picture of understanding of how many uh, partnerships um, exist and, and what the extent of those are. Uh, and, and then subsequently, uh, from what I understand, the, the federal working group that is working on developing um, uh, guidelines for all Canadian institutions should complete their work by, by June. And we'll be taking a very close look at those guidelines and uh, to ensure that they are strong enough to protect Canadian intellectual property. Our, just like our sister institutions across the rest of the country, Alberta post-secondary institutions are home to incredible groundbreaking research and new discoveries. And we want to ensure that that intellectual property, those new discoveries are, are protected. 
and uh, are not being um, um, exploited in ways that were never contemplated. Well, and, and, you know, you're right. It makes sense the federal government take a lead on this. I mean, absent any any federal direction, though, I mean, where does that leave us, right? If you get this information, we get this pause, and then, you know, months go by, the federal government hasn't taken any action. Do we just sort of drop the whole thing, or is there room for the province to maybe take some action itself? If uh, if in the uh, unfortunate and, and uh, circumstance that the federal government doesn't provide direction, I, I think we would need to look very carefully at that from a provincial government standpoint. Now, of course, as a provincial government, you know matters of uh, foreign affairs and national security are within the purview of the of the federal government. But uh, we would we would have to look at what um, um, uh, what areas of of jurisdictional uh, authority do we have as a provincial government and, and we would have to take action if if the federal government uh, does not but again this is something that is not just affecting uh, potentially institutions here in Alberta but across the country and I think we all need to work together as as this working group is doing uh, build a strong framework and develop some strong guidelines on a national level uh, to to the betterment of all of our post-secondary institutions. But in the absence, uh, again, in the unfortunate circumstance that the federal government doesn't come up with anything, which I, I should comment, I think, is unlikely. I, I do expect guidelines to be released uh, next month, from what I understand. But in the event that there isn't, we, we would have to look at taking some next steps. All right. Well, we'll see where it goes from here. We'll leave it there for now, Minister. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Always. Thank you very much. All right, take care. That is uh, Demetrius Nicolaitis, Alberta's Minister of Advanced Education. So, University of Calgary, University of Alberta, University of Lethbridge, and Athabasca University are the four universities that have been asked to pause uh, any any new partnerships or arrangements. And uh, they have 90 days to to provide details on what kind of collaboration or partnerships exist. Now, based on what's been reported, it's certainly the University of Alberta that's engaged in a lot more of this. And I think it would be helpful for the federal government to provide some rules and guidance around all of this. You know, what areas of research are more concerning than others? And even when it comes down to, you know, certain labs or universities or other institutions in China, you know, maybe where there's some red flags. I mean, to the extent that independence exists at all uh, under the Chinese government, I mean, I, I think there are going to be some institutes that, that have a little more independence than others and some that are maybe less connected to official state apparatus or the military than others, and sort of provide some guidance along those lines, too. There's been a lot of talk lately about uh, the patents that exist for those that have developed the COVID-19 vaccines that are making such a huge difference. And look, obviously, there's a reason why this protection of intellectual property exists. And certainly, I think without that system, we might not have these these vaccines in the first place. But given the, the dire situation in many parts of the world, there have been calls, including from the United States, in fact, to lift those patents or to waive or, or not enforce those patents. Now, in fairness, I mean, for example, Moderna has, has said that they're not enforcing their patents. But, um, you know, there, it's it certainly seems more complicated than that. What are the unintended consequences, though, of, of this approach? Are we taking too narrow a view of things when we look at the patents as an obstacle to getting more globally available vaccines? There is a uh, joint declaration 
from over two dozen think tanks from around the world, uh, highlighting the importance of these patents of intellectual property rights when it comes to making, manufacturing uh, vaccines for this pandemic and any future pandemics. That removing these patents could cause more harm than good. Well, joining us to talk more about uh, this issue, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Richard C. Owens. He's a senior fellow of the McDonald laurie Institute, one of the uh, 27 think tanks that has signed on to this declaration. He's also an adjunct professor of law at the University of Toronto. Professor Owens, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. Well, let's let's talk about the you know the the argument we hear from the those in favor of waiving these patents that these companies own these patents and prevents other companies and other countries from making these vaccines like it makes such a huge difference places like India etc. What gets left out of that though? Well, uh, almost all the important parts of the story actually it's kind of a it's kind of a flip line that when you look beneath it doesn't doesn't uh, conceal very much in the way of reasoning or, or, or force. You know, the, I think the key thing we have to understand is that simply providing access to intellectual property or breaking a patent actually won't accomplish anything because the uh, companies involved have done so much to scale production, including widely sharing their intellectual property that right now patents aren't a barrier. The only barrier is, there is, is the continued scaling of, uh, of, of factories to produce the vaccines. And there isn't a lot of capacity, uh, you know, unused not-for-profit capacity waiting out there to, to generate more, uh, more vaccine production. So, you know, waiving intellectual property won't make a difference in the near term. But it's sure going to discourage people from creating the vaccines and other therapies we need in the future when the next pandemic or indeed the next variant of this virus comes along. So where, where did this first come from, this, this uh, World Trade Organization uh-huh. proposal? Well, it first came from uh, India and South Africa. They sponsored it. Right. And, you know, they're countries that are having an awful lot of trouble with the pandemic. And um, it's it's a nice sideshow to blame the people who are writing to the rescue, the virus makers and drug companies, for their problems. But that's not the source of of, of the problems uh, that 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 they're having. And waiving intellectual property is going to put it in the hands of you know people like China who want to steal it anyway, as opposed to um, actually bringing therapies to the less advantaged people of, the, of, of, of their countries and others who need it. So they, South Africa and India have pushed for this proposal in the, in the World Trade Organization. It's actually got very little chance of success because it needs unanimity to, to, uh, to succeed. The proposal actually is not only for vaccines, it's for all therapies and and uh, uh, vaccines responding to COVID-19. In the world, something like between six and 700 new therapies and new vaccines are under investigation. All of those stimulated by the intellectual property regime that brings together the vast amounts of capital and expertise necessary for these things to, to, to come into production uh, under the enormously difficult risks that uh, the industry faces. And it's amazing how much they've delivered, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and for the World Trade Organization, that is actually supposed to be the organization defending the system to entertain uh, this, this misconceived 
uh, idea of of breaking the patents is uh, is, is most unfortunate. It does seem counterintuitive in a way that that's we're we're you know celebrating the system that has delivered these vaccines that are making such a huge difference, and then at the same time we're turning around and denouncing that that very system that delivered these vaccines. So. Which is it, right? Well, I mean, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And the reality is, there are an awful lot of people who are ideologically, not necessarily all, you know, corrupt or selfish, but uh, who are ideologically opposed to private property and the wealth it brings to society. And for them, this is a great opportunity because because people are focused on the scope of the disaster and not necessarily on the details of how private property plays such a critical role in helping to address such global global disasters. So yeah, it's 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 counterintuitive. We now we are relying on this this uh, incredible engine of innovation more than ever. It's a terrible time to say oh we didn't mean it. All that promise we gave you of patents if you saved the world, eh, maybe next time. I don't think so. Well, let's talk about why it's so important and, and the, the link between that kind of ingenuity and innovation and, you know, this, this system that exists that protects intellectual property. Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting because, you know, I, amongst, amongst my friends talking about intellectual property, uh, it, it makes people's eyes glaze over, right? It's a very complex and abstract topic. Yeah. And and one which is, you know, it, it's difficult to grasp. And indeed, both on the right and the left, there are powerful ideological arguments against it. People are, are dislike government monopolies. People dislike putting things like, like the rights to cure people in private hands. But the utility of the system is immeasurable. It's uncontroversially uh, uh, demonstrated by all the data that show how patents drive innovation in the countries that, that support them support them well. This little sliver of monopoly that companies have to struggle to gain um, becomes a kind of prize that yields a profit for a particular drug. Almost all drugs that are investigated fail. 95% of patents have no value. Um, the few of the drugs that actually go to clinical trials at most one out of five actually makes it to market. So you're looking at incredibly long odds for this small potential prize of a monopoly to make back some of the money you've invested along the way to find a successful drug. The scope of that monopoly is really carefully argued over by the agents of the government and the agents of the drug companies so that we get something that's kind of just right to provide an incentive for investment on the one hand, but not ex- not an excessive monopoly and not excessive profits on the other. Um, as I say, it's an intricate and abstract system. Uh, it is easily and widely um, critiqued by those who don't you know, understand its details. But once you begin to see how it works, you appreciate that it's actually quite an organic and effective system responsive to the needs of science. The other thing it does is in order to get this monopoly, you have to publish all of the details of what your invention is and how to best make it. So in exchange for, um, in exchange for this opportunity to make back some of your money, hopefully a profit, the world gets 
this tremendous advancement of science. Um, and it's information which would otherwise be kept entirely confidential because um, in order to profit from the invention without a patent, you'd have to do your best to keep your discovery secret and sell the product without explaining how to make it. And under this system, not only do we have vaccines that are effective against this virus, against this pandemic, but we're going to see billions of them made this year, as many as 12 billion vaccine doses by the end of 2021. That's truly remarkable. And, and that's what's resulted from this existing system that we have. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the idea that we would want to undermine that now going forward, and, and I think that's what you're getting at here, that this has a real, uh, you know, downside to it. I think that's exactly right. Look, it, it, it must be said, we got awfully lucky. Not only do we come up with a surprising number of vaccines very quickly, many of them based upon a, a technology which is, although not entirely novel, has never been used on anything like this scale. It was only employed with, with cancer before and sort of failed with respect to, the, to an AIDS vaccine. Um, but we've also got vaccines which have proven more effective than virtually, I think, any other vaccine in human history. There's some new data coming out which are just extraordinary. And that's to the credit of the companies that made them, but it's also a little bit, uh, a little bit fortunate under the circumstances. But, um, yeah, it's, it's worked amazingly well. The fact that we've gone from, um, the fact that we've gone from vaccine discovery to being able to produce and roll out doses by the billion in this short space of time is head spinning. It has happened in spite of certain ingredients and adjuvants to some of the vaccines being available in microgram limited supplies at the beginning of production runs. That kind of scaling, that kind of sharing of know-how and knowledge that made that scaling possible can only ever have happened under a private property intellectual pro uh, a private intellectual property driven system. If we had put, can you imagine if we had put, say, the Canadian government in charge of looking after vaccines for us? What did they do? Yeah. They gave our IP to China and hoped. Would anybody listening to this program have actually taken a vaccine from China, even if they had deigned to give it, give it to us? Which, of course, they didn't. So, yeah, um, it's a system that has served us very well. God forbid we should face another pandemic like this, but, you know, inevitably we will. And I think maintaining the integrity of this system, the importance of that can't be overstressed. That's true. No, like, I mean, in the meantime, there are some countries, obviously, where the crisis remains acute. India is an example. There are parts of the developing world that haven't had a lot of access to vaccines at the moment. But it, and I think the point you're making here is that, you know, the IP system that exists needn't be a barrier to addressing those challenges, should it? No, it's the means to address them, in fact. Um, the the the. Um, there are parts of the world which are not as economically advantaged as ours, it's true, and don't get first priority to supply, which in any event is always limited at the beginning. But if you look at the extent to which it, private companies have shared intellectual property, have donated doses to countries around the world, have made intellectual property licenses available for free to companies to uh, companies and countries, to begin to produce therapies uh, on their own. 
it's actually an extraordinary story of how even the less developed world has been served much more quickly than it otherwise would have. Again, the ability to scale up companies that have been left out of this, including the, tr the access to the scarce ingredients and the transfer of know-how to make pure vaccines in large volumes, um, they're trying to do that through baking intellectual property uh, barriers. It's just not going to be successful. It's not a. It's not really an option. So, although yes, it takes time to roll out to to less developed parts of the world. I think it's going as quickly as it reasonably can. And mm. again, IP is just a non-issue. It's not going to change that. We'll leave there. Much more at uh, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Richard, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. All right. All the best. That is uh, Richard C. Owens. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, one of the 27 organizations that has signed on to this global joint declaration stressing the importance of intellectual property rights and patents. And look at what it's produced, this system. And let's not undermine that for the next time we're going to have to rely on it. Richard also has mentioned adjunct professor of law at the University of Toronto. Again, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Then following the news lately, it seems as though there have been increasing headlines, increased coverage around UFOs. I've been hearing a lot about UFOs in the news as of late. You had uh, an in-depth uh, piece in The New Yorker not too long ago on how the Pentagon started taking UFOs seriously. And 60 Minutes did a big piece on UFOs. Uh, the Conservative National Review ran a piece recently on how the conventional wisdom on UFOs is shifting. Former President Barack Obama on a recent talk show confessed that with some of these videos, we don't know exactly what we're seeing in those videos. So there's, there's a lot of this out there, but is it because that something significant has changed? Is there some compelling new evidence uh, that, that this UFO phenomenon is, is real, that the U.S. government knows something, is hiding something? Are we that close to finally confirming that not only does life exist elsewhere in the universe, but they've been regularly visiting us? So for UFO enthusiasts, this has been a really exciting time. But does the actual evidence match that enthusiasm? What exactly is going on here? I think it's the question. There's a really fascinating piece up at the New Republic, newrepublic.com, looking at how Washington got hooked on flying saucers. So there's a lot to unpack here. But uh, joining us to talk more about this issue is the author of that piece, which has mentioned up at newrepublic.com. Jason Colavito is an author and researcher. His website, jasoncolavito.com. Jason, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Like I say, I mean, it feels like it's been a real frenzy as of late, you know, just doing a Google News search for UFOs, all kinds of uh, different stories and headlines pop up. So what, what has happened over the last few weeks here, as best you can tell? Well, the current frenzy that we're seeing is pretty much the direct result of two uh, related phenomena, so to speak. The New Yorker article really uh, got the media excited about UFOs even though the New Yorker article doesn't really present any sort of new evidence or information, it uh, recaps a lot of what had happened before, but did so in a very prestigious publication that mm -hmm. anyone who's everyone <laughs> is uh, reading. 
On the other hand, the other major component of this is that the United States Congress is requiring a report about UFOs uh, from the country's intelligence services, and that's due to be uh, delivered to Congress in June. Now, that's the news peg that has gotten the media so excited about talking about UFOs again. But uh, these two um, issues are very closely related because both of them have been prompted by work done by a somewhat shadowy group of people who have been advocating for more government um, involvement in UFO transparency and uh, UFO investigation since um, at least 2017. Uh, this particular group is, uh, uh, well, you've seen them on TV. Uh, you've mm -hmm. seen Louis Elizondo. You've seen Chris Mellon. They're the uh, people who were interviewed on 60 Minutes. Right. You see them in almost every one of the news stories that comes up about this. And it's really been because of their advocacy that we're seeing what we're seeing now. The question, however, is are they advocating for UFOs because they have great evidence that UFOs are something scary, that's uh, a threat that needs to be taken seriously and dealt with immediately, or is it because of other more interesting uh, beliefs that they have behind the scenes? And in my article, one of the things I talk about is some of that uh, behind-the-scenes maneuvering and manipulation that led us to this point. All right. So there's there's, you know, some some familiar figures so people who follow the UFO scene uh, that come up in all of this. So there, there's certainly a group of UFO enthusiasts who for a long time have been, you know, sort of arguing for, on the one hand, for the U.S. government to be more transparent, but on the other hand, sort of pushing the conspiracy theory angle that the U.S. government knows about all of this. The U.S. government's covering up. Area 51 is where all the aliens and UFOs are. So th this this is very much coming from from that crowd, then, is it? Oh, certainly. Uh, all of this originates more or less in a group of people who have a very magical way of thinking, let's put it. Um, this entire UFO investigation originates in a group of people who started out investigating whether psychics could be used to spy on the Soviets with their mental superpowers. And these people also moved on under the patronage of a very wealthy hotel magnate named Robert Bigelow to investigating a ranch in Utah where they thought space spooks were coming in through the sky in an interdimensional portal. And these people very seriously thought that UFOs are these psychic phenomena that are popping in from another dimension and that they're related to poltergeists and that these space ghosts are dangerous and imminent and will challenge the very nature of science by expanding our understanding of consciousness and all of that sort of thing. And they managed to convince the Defense Intelligence Agency, one of the nation's um, most important intelligence services located in the Pentagon, that these space spooks are real and got the government to start investigating their magic ghost ranch. And as a result, Robert Bigelow, who was friends with uh, Senator Harry Reid, uh, managed to convince Reid and two other senators to fund a program to pay him to hunt space spooks in Utah. And that expanded out into a, an investigation of UFOs. And um, eventually, here we are, because what happened is the guy who took it upon himself to continue that program after the funding ran out, when he left the Pentagon, this is Louis Elizondo we're talking about, ran directly to the space spook people who are now working for 
a company called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science, a uh, UFO entertainment company, and took his story to them, and they immediately knew what they had to do. This was a serious national security crisis. So they ran to the History Channel to start a reality TV show, and that's how we ended up here. <laughs> okay, so what What I think gets people excited, um, you mentioned Louis Elizondo, and yes. he was apparently at some point, he, he worked for the Pentagon in some capacity. You've got another figure uh, on the, the perimeter of this, Bob Lazar, who claims to yeah. have uh, worked for the Pentagon <laughs> yeah. in some capacity. So the idea right. that these are insiders or whistleblowers, that, that's very captivating to people. Oh, it certainly is. And that's what gives them that uh, superficial air of credibility. Louis Elizondo was on all of the United States' biggest news programs over the past couple of weeks. Just on Sunday, he was on uh, This Week with George Stephanopoulos. And yesterday, he was on both Fox News and CNN. And he talks a good game because he presents this in a very sober, rational way, saying this is a national security issue. We need to look at it to find out what's going on because we don't know. And then behind the scenes, you know, the first thing he said after he... Um, came to fame in 2017, is he thinks it's space aliens. And, you know, when nobody's looking, he goes off into the UFO conspiracy field. He hired a lawyer who's famous for um, being the lawyer for alien abduction researchers. He um, is he went on a podcast hosted by one of the guys from Ancient Aliens. And this week, he's going on the Discovery Channel's uh, paranormal ghost hunting reality show to go hunt space a underwater space aliens on a reality program. I mean, what exactly are we supposed to take from that? You know, yeah. you're supposed to say this is a very serious, sober national security issue that is an imminent, incredible threat to the United States. And also watch my reality show, and, uh, you know, I'm... He worked for an entertainment company. It, it it doesn't quite add up. It's not the, it's not what you would expect if somebody were straightforwardly pursuing this national security angle. To my mind, the national security perspective on UFOs is kind of the storyline they settled on to make it seem as reasonable and as important as possible. Part of what's what's fueled a lot of the coverage are, are some of these leaked videos, or videos that at least the Pentagon has confirmed to be real videos, uh, showing mm -hmm. some things that seem unusual, we can't quite explain, and it fits very neatly into this whole narrative that something has changed and something big is afoot. But mm -hmm. what do we make of these videos and, and how the Pentagon is, is treating these reports and these encounters that pilots have described? Well, first of all, I'll caution you that um, I'm not an expert in video footage, so uh, you can take my analysis with a grain of salt, but uh, the Pentagon said that the videos are authentic. They have not said what the video, what they believe the videos show. So it's still an open question whether anyone in the Pentagon, besides the people who are associated with Luis Elizondo, really consider these to be extraordinary and um, uh, unexplained. Uh, many plausible hypotheses have been put forward. Um, if you go on YouTube, you can see any number of debunking videos that offer um, fairly consistent and um, fairly convincing explanations for each of the videos. But the bigger issue is that what these videos show isn't significantly different from what people have been reporting for the entirety of the UFO era. It's, you know, more of the same. And that gets back to the idea that what people are seeing and what they're interpreting what they're seeing to be are often two different things. 
when you see something ambiguous in the sky, a light, a color, a shape, it runs through a mental filter, through the um, archetypes and the ideas you have in your mind. And after 75 years of flying saucers, people are primed to interpret whatever they see through that lens. So when you're up in the air and you're seeing something you don't understand, your brain is trying to fit it into a category. And one of the things that many people have in their minds is that science fiction image of the alien spaceship, the flying saucer, and what have you. And so in many cases, what you see is what you believe you're going to see. We'll see where this all goes in the days and weeks ahead. As mentioned, this piece is up at newrepublic.com and much more, jasonnicolavito.com. Jason, appreciate your time here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. All the best. That is author, journalist, researcher Jason Colavito, and uh, his piece on all of this is uh, up at newrepublic.com. So he's making the point that, look, there's a lot of the same UFO enthusiasts who have been making these claims for a long time, and for a variety of reasons, they've kind of captured people's attention at the moment. So is there, is there more going on here? Is it as simple as that? And would we make of some of these videos that have emerged? I think as Jason says, though, what you're hoping to see or expecting to see is maybe going to shape your perception or your interpretation of what actually is being seen. I think certainly from the Pentagon's perspective or any other country's military, if something weird is in your airspace, you're going to take that seriously. Is it some kind of drone? Is it some kind of aircraft or experimental drone or something that another country or foreign adversary might have created. You know, I would think that that alien spacecraft is pretty far down the list of likely candidates for something like this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.